Hi, my name is Dr. Kavan Sanger. I'm a practicing doctor of clinical psychology and I also have a PhD in neuroscience. Hi, I'm Dave. I'm an actor. That's it. We're also a couple. And during the pandemic, we've spent far too long in each other's company, having interdisciplinary discussions and watching films. And like many couples stuck in an echo chamber, we've developed illusions of grandeur that our opinions are one, valid, and two, interesting to other people. (laughs) So we've decided to make them public, looking at films and their main protagonists through the lens of a psychologist and an actor. What motivates and drives their actions? What's film intending speak louder than words? And what things just really don't make that much sense? In our opinion, anyway. We'll leave that for you to decide. So, this week we are going to be looking at... Whiplash. <laughs> That's not that's not a sound of whiplash. <laughs> that actually makes it sound quite a sexy film. It's, <laughs> it's oh, not. No, it's not. It's not. I'm not, it's not. It's not anything but. But it's. Kev was <laughs> 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 just like look at that window. Like go on, you save yourself. I don't know where you're going with this. <laughs> I I can do nothing for you out there. <laughs> you are drowning, my friend. <laughs> well, I got I got downgraded to friend. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So now you know the name of the film. We'll give you three seconds to tune out. Three, two, one, one and a half. How did it go up? One, one and a half. Oh yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> right, that's it. <laughs> Let's start again. This has gone nowhere. Oh no, we're not doing it again. Right. So if you're still with us, then you've seen the film or. You just want to hear us chat about some stuff, mm-hmm. which is equally just as nice. So, um, a little synopsis on the film itself. A young man called Andrew Neiman, Miles Teller, is practicing late at night in his New York music school, one of the best in the country. When wandering past Mr. Fletcher, J.K. Simmons, the most important teacher at the school and the conductor of its most important jazz band, Fletcher pauses, listens and likes what he hears. He tells Andrew to join his jazz band. Once there, his time in musical changes. He's pushed physically and mentally by the Fletcher, who believes this is the only way to make special talented musicians is to break them. Fletcher's offensive insults and authoritarian leadership keep the group on their toes. Discarding morality and anyone who can't take the stress is left behind. Off the back of this, Andrew's longing for musical immortality becomes obsessive. Finishing relationships, and along with that, any balance that he had in his life. This comes to a head when Andrew pushes back, and after a car crash on his way to a concert, Andrew attacks Fletcher on stage. A few months pass, and Neiman bumps into Fletcher, who invites him to join in a one-off concert. As they get on stage, Fletcher reveals that he knows Andrew was the one who got him fired, after all. And Andrew realises, too late, that he's been set up by Fletcher in revenge for this with the wrong music for the concert. Andrew, however, comes through and busts the performance, leading to a slight reconciliation with Fletcher, coming to an understanding that Andrew could make a great musician one day. Today, we will be touching on topics around obsession, motivation and drive, and emotional abuse, 
um, as well as family structures and whose opinions really matter to us. So hopefully this will be an interesting discussion and something that fuels debate and other people's opinions as well as ours. But if that's going to be quite triggering or difficult for you, then absolutely come and join us on our next episode. Take care, guys. So, folks, full disclosure, this is take two. Take one did not go that well. No, I I was left floundering so many times. Not because you didn't try to save me. You did, and it was great. Thank you. Thank you. But I was just not feeling it. We've come to realise that Dave has gotten to a stage in his life where he's now allergic to the Great British countryside. It's rubbish. Hay fever. Yeah. Yeah. It's ridiculous is what it is. (laughs) I'm allergic to flowers. (laughs) Um, But we've, yeah, we've now figured out what the issue is. Yeah. And we are medicating you appropriately. (laughs) I'm I'm buzzed up. (laughs) But only only when necessary. It's not great to, to take antihistamines unless you need them. <laughs> the, the doctor kicked in and she was like, wait, nope, right, I can't, can't be condoning this. <laughs> Sorry, it really did. It really did for a moment. I'll, I'll calm down. I've actually, um, I've just finished work. So I am still very much within professional Dr. Sanger mode right now. Whereas I've had a whole day at home. <laughs> Been chilling out. <laughs> what else is there to do? So this should be an interesting debate on take two. Yes, absolutely. I'm I'm excited to hear All the same points again. Yes. <laughs> but with more passion and less puffiness. More fervor. Mm. Go, dazzle me. Okay, right. So in this film, I think the best place to start is looking at how intensity is created through film in general and then using each of those as an example for how how it's how it's created in this film in particular so um i think first of all we need uh, an understanding of how the dramatic curve works in films in commercials in documentaries uh, in everything that is created for our view and pleasure it's all built up in a, a similar manner you've got the uh, exposition phase, the conflict, climax, and then resolution. And normally it starts off slow and gradually builds and builds and builds. And then you get to the climax and then it all comes down for resolution. Like, there's a nice little diagram that you can find on the internet. Um, it's of a triangle. So it's got the slow build up to a point and then it comes down. It's like a little little bit of the triangle. I don't know what it's called. That bit. The a- angle tip. I'm not a mathematician. I don't know. <laughs> I was looking at you like you might know. I know you're bad at maths. <laughs> You've lived. You live with me. You know this. Yeah. <laughs> is that is that deceptive doctor title? It it means that socially we're expected to be clever in all fields. I mean that's why I'm guessing more than half the people listening to this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Right. So um, yeah, you've got the exposition and conflict phase running on up to the climax um, and then it comes down and that's the resolution part of it so you've got that that build and fall afterwards when the challenge is resolved it starts to sort of tone down and wrap up the story the mm-hmm. film or the you know, commercial or the whatever it is um, the other might change but it's essentially the same components mm. just in a different order 
I always think of this being really obvious in teen romances. It's painfully obvious, but I don't really think about it in other genres. But actually, yes, it's always the same kind of story, isn't it? In everything. If you're talking Batman, if you're talking Spider-Man, if you're talking... Other heroes. Other other Iron Man. (laughs) (laughs) Everything goes by the same. So, yeah, the place we can see this in, in Whiplash, however is that it isn't quite in that order. So you see, um, at the start, you've got the um, the exposition phase of, like, this is who the characters are, and the, the conflict is the whole way through. It's between uh, Fletcher and Neiman, and it's the one battle against the other, trying to get the upper hand, if you like. Mm. And then you've got the climax with the fight, and it comes down. You expect it to come down, at least, of which... It then ramps back up again in that moment when the, you realise that they've not resolved their differences. And then you've got another conflict and then it falls down quite rapidly, really wraps up. And with the, like, it's like eight or nine minute long drum solo, which is pretty, I mean, it's pretty impressive. Like, it's, in- it's incredible. It's hypnotic. Yeah. Exhausting. I mean, apparently there's drummers out there that know more than we do obviously they would and they're like that's not that's not the case like he is it's all all the wrong things being played there but to a layman it's pretty cool i have to put up with a whole genre called psychological thriller so i'm sure they can deal with it (laughs) deal with it (laughs) you've got to enjoy it for what it is to an extent to an extent absolutely absolutely the thing that I specifically like is that in this last moment, when it dawns on Andrew, you there's a shot from Fletcher's point of view and it zooms in on him in that like claustrophobic feel and it becomes like a very personal attack on him all of a sudden and you can see it is acting really well that it just dawns on him. He's like, oh, shit. You do feel that, actually. The, now you point that out, you do mm. feel very trapped. It is kind of that sinking stomach feeling there's no way out yeah it's quite intense and it's actually quite intense the whole way through this film if we're we're honest in lots of different ways and there's lots of different techniques that are used in order to create this tension which we'll go on to next so when we're looking at how intensity is controlled on screen the composition of each shot is is so important and it might not um, initially seem like what's the point point in talking about know the lighting or the costume but there are oscars for these things it is really intrinsically important to story and to the story that's being told on screen so going right back to the beginning i think you've got to remember where we are so we're put into this conservatoire and the stakes are pretty high at this point like most Mm. kids they might get through but they won't go any further with their career Mm. and there's only a finite number of positions available in orchestras um, unless you're going to form your own, of course. It's the same with acting, you know. There's only a finite number of roles available at any one point, um, which you're painfully aware of. I, um, I was going to say, I think, yeah, how how much do you kind of relate to that as also an underlying pressure in this film that you have to be the best because there is only so many positions out there? Was that part of your training as well, that idea that, like, yeah, this might be the end of the road if I'm not the best. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, watching it now, I, I've been graduated 
seven years, somewhere around there. It's nice because I can watch it with a bit of hindsight going, oh, oh, you little freshers, oh, <laughs> all, all the trials and tribulations ahead of you. You don't know, you don't know. But also, yeah, it is, there is a lot of pressure. There's a lot of pressure put on you by, by, by the conservatoire, by the university. And there's a lot of pressure, I think more so that you pressurise yourself because you know that you want to, well, you want to get to this certain point and nobody can do that for you. Mm. I mean, like, it's studying anything. It's wanting to be good at anything, isn't it? Yeah. Um, it's that inner perfectionism, which I think they do really well in this film. Oh, and I, I will definitely touch on that in a bit. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think definitely there's um, something in that that's also relatable. So I wonder if that also then builds the pressure because other people can... Maybe not in this profession, but I'm I'm sure most people can understand that perfectionism or that fear of failure in mm. something, especially to do that publicly. Yeah, we and it's all public in the arts. Mm. Well, like to to a degree, it's public. <laughs> Hopefully, it's public. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's the thing. The public only see the like the two percent of the the time that you're. You've, you've been practicing and, yeah, the other 98% they're not interested in, honestly, because it's not very good. <laughs> <laughs> I think also this idea that these people are able to motivate themselves all the time, that's not mm. feasible, is it? You know, an, an actor or a musician or a sports person, they're going to have days they wake up and they can't be bothered. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, like this morning. <laughs> But but they do it anyway, and I think that's the that's the great thing. Mm. That's the impressive thing. Absolutely. So if we are looking at the different components of how the shots are put together, I think uh, a good thing to look at is the space in each shot. If there's little or lots, equally like the intensity can be paramount when there's almost too much space. Like you think of like two thousand one Space Odyssey, mm. like it's just it's it's enormous. Mm. Or if you look at like a like one tiny shot of just an eye on screen, that can be equally intense. And I think in this film, Andrew is trapped between his desire for like this unattainable greatness he's after and the camera. And this is done really well through the, the zooming in in certain moments on Andrew and his face, where you've got zooming in from a wider shot where you have Andrew at the drums to just his face. And that really, like we said before, it causes this claustrophobic mm. intensity on mm. the screen, mm. which is projected onto you. Another thing is the colour scheme in the film. And each shot can have impact, each individual one. Uh, like the lighting of the scene amounts for, for so much. And it's really obvious in, in some films. You have people that, again, won awards for this. Mm. Like... I know, it's a very good friend of mine, shout out. Um, if, you, if you need some lighting work, then uh, go see this guy. I love that you're then not giving his name. But I, lo- I don't know if I can. I don't know if I can talk about <laughs> Jay Madara. Like, I, I don't know. Can I, Jay, tell me. Can, can I? Can, can... <laughs> but, yeah, especially for this film, where so much of it is actually on stage. Mm. The Obviously, the lighting is difficult to set up. It's difficult to use, but... In order to create the intensity, the right lighting changes at the right moments, I think is so important. You look at the end scene where 
Andrew's just like tried to get his way through and he, he has no idea what the piece is. Right at the end, the lighting changes because it's the end of a piece and uh, the house lights come up and then Fletcher will do some talking and then they'll go on to the next piece, which is fine. But I also think the the subtle lighting change is, is really important because it, it shows that his state of mind is also changing mm. throughout. So it goes from like, I think, blues to yellows and that sort of switch really speaks to me. I think it's a bit like what you were saying the other week about how a lot of these more subtle things about cinematography you only notice as a as an audience member when it's off. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like, you, you would know immediately if one light is slightly offset. Mm. But if it's positioned perfectly, you it's, it's like you almost won't notice it. No, but you feel it. Mm. And I suppose that's that's the thing in this film. So much of it is about the yeah the emotional reaction mm. that it gives you. Yeah, absolutely. I suppose there's also that moment. So you're talking about the the house lights coming back up mm-hmm. after um, he was given the wrong music, and he's just had to make it up. Essentially, I guess it's almost like saying, "Yep, and the end." Yeah. And yeah. and at that point, done. he puts his head down and then runs off the stage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, that is it. Yeah, he's done. And it could have been the end of the film. Would have been awful. It would have been so tragic. Would have been that would have been the the story that well, like not quite, but a lot of people would have been able, I think, to connect with that. I'm just going like, right, no, you 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 burnt out. That was it. There was nothing you could do. Yeah, hmm. but. Uh, yeah just the lighting coming up it's also it's such an easy way isn't it to kind of cue an audience to and now we have a scene on a stage so you (laughs) just you put a spotlight on yeah or you have the little what were candles i guess at the front of a stage spotlights yeah Yeah. thank you (laughs) but it's like instant (laughs) cues yeah little candles it's instant cue of and we're on a stage now Mm. it's it's a really easy way of kind of setting that up yeah and also in that in that in that scene, you can actually see the audience. There are many um, times and occurrences in the film when you can actually see the audience mm. watching you, mm. and they're just as perplexed as you are in that moment. Just like, what is this kid playing at? Yeah, it's interesting how when they have those moments actually, because a lot of the film is behind the scenes, you sort of forget. Oh yeah, that's why they're trying to get so good at this it is something you're always they're always talking about the immortality of incredible musicians mm. but you it does become or it feels like it becomes so much more about the craft itself than the fact that this is a performance yeah but i mean like when you're at uni it's it's and when you're studying it's all about the craft and it should it should be because that's when you it's when you learn this when you can make mistakes mm. it's only when you're there in front of an audience that's when the performance side of it comes out like um i know a lot of times at uh uni and at drama schools then they don't allow you to to be in any productions in your first and second year really yeah only third year yeah yeah some do some don't i i disagree with it but i can see why also because mm. they they say right the first and second year we're we're stripping you down completely mm. and then we just build you up bit by bit until you really understand what you're doing, you understand your craft, and then you can, then you can apply it. That reminds me. So, bit of context. Me and Dave 
have both fenced for many years. Did you hear, I don't know if it's true, but there were always rumours that I heard of very old school fencing teachers who wouldn't let their pupils hold a sword for a year. They only did footwork. Get out. <laughs> it's outrageous. It's like, oh, you can't, you can't do anything until you can boil rice. Well, you still can't. <laughs> yeah, I can. Mm. Yeah, it's fine. You just shove a load of water in, whack it on, and then drain it when it's done. I feel I should have given people an extra warning at the start. <laughs> I'm sorry, offensive cooking instructions. Nah, it's effective cooking instructions. Oh, gosh. Anyway, not what we're talking about. I don't want to get into a domestic on this. <laughs> because that is one of the biggest upsets we've had this year. It really is. Yeah, because Kev is so set on one way of cooking and will not deviate one ounce. I don't think that's true. I think your rice tastes bad and I've had very few pleasures. How can rice taste bad? When it's soggy and gross and overcooked. It's just rice. I'm, I'm not. No. <laughs> so, moving swiftly on. Very, very few pleasures in lockdown. Food is right, one of the okay. ones I have been able to have. I, I refuse to have subpar rice. Oh, God. Yeah. Living in St Albans now, refusing subpar rice. I would have refused subpar rice in Collindale, Swindon or anywhere else I've lived. That's <laughs> <laughs> what I've got myself into. Yep. So, the costume. <laughs> Thank you. I think the costume in in films is, is so important. It helps set you where you are, the, the, the age, what characters believe in themselves, if they don't, if they do. You know, it's just like if you see somebody walking down the street and they're dressed in, I don't know, a hoodie. Or if they're dressed in a suit. You know, the different ideas that you get about the person. And it's so intrinsic. Whereas, I think in this film... It is important in that way, but but more specifically, several scenes, but one in particular when um, Fletcher is in a black t-shirt and there's a dark background and the contrast between the dark background, the dark t-shirt and his lighter skin means that you then look to like certain places, like you're looking at his face and you're looking at his arms that he's he's wielding about and he's thrown all over the place uh, i think it's in the scene where where neiman is earning the part i think in that one is that where they've got the three different drummers yes yeah okay. and he's wielding the, this all about and you're being made to look in these specific places and i think that that for me really ramps up the intensity in those scenes because you can see the con- contortion of his face mm. um and the way he's moving his fingers and everything it's really it's highlighted mm. for me and then you've also in that scene got the sort of white drum skin yeah exactly in contrast to these the blood that has come off the hands of the drummers mm. because of how hard he is working them and how hard they're pushing themselves yeah which apparently would isn't a thing but really yeah, apparently yeah like hmm. but i like the fact that it's there because how can you show the the desire the the need the the want to put yourself through these things and the determination hmm. the blood on screen is really emotive in that way blood anywhere it's yeah. we're pre-programmed to respond to that that's hmm. instant warning 
sign you know that's important yeah take care is there something as well about the i mean it, it's a film about drumming drumming so is there something about the the speed and the tempo and how they have they like chosen certain moments to make sure the beat is faster or slower because it can kind of mirror the heartbeat or breathing see i'd not i'd not thought about the heartbeat and breathing but that it actually goes on very nicely to my next point i was going to talk about the the rhythm and sound oh great yeah absolutely like when somebody is is drumming at that pace it's got to have an impact on you Mm. like if you listen to techno music or if you listen to like a slow calming classical piano track for instance like and now they've proven that your your heart rate changes yeah yeah your heart rate changes your biochemistry changes as a result um it's nuts it's pre-verbal we are we are like we're wired up to respond to music and beat and rhythm um it's something that that translates between different languages and different cultures as well Mm. so you can kind of really make sure you touch everyone in an audience which is pretty cool yeah absolutely so the thing is rhythm is perceived in different ways i think in general we we hear it we see it and we we feel it and it's really difficult to describe you can say yeah i like this track but you don't know why what is it about Mm. certain feelings or emotions or so you can't even you can't even say now but i can see what you can't see is that dave is he's moving his arms he's his shoulders are going i'm quite a shouldery person that's how you are yeah (laughs) (laughs) the knees come down yep the shoulders get involved that's how you dance you're getting quite a picture right now aren't you (laughs) i've seen you dance many times it's brilliant But words are quite reductionist, I think, when it comes to when it comes to a lot of emotion. Um, mm. But definitely, the way that that's expressed in music. And that's why people turn to singer-songwriters, for example. Mm. Like it's something that they can't quite express, and that's the the best singer-songwriters. They're not necessarily singer-songwriters, but the best songwriters are able to capture that essence of what you're feeling and able to put into words. Mm. that are universally relatable yeah yeah that's it is such a skill and it's something that i work with in therapy as well so when you're trying to help someone learn to be okay with their emotions or to regulate emotions so if they're experiencing something particularly difficult music can be a really great way of getting someone into a different state so either giving permission to really feel a certain emotion, then great, you know, find music for that. Or if actually you are, I don't know, feeling really panicky and you want to be able to tap into your parasympathetic nervous system, so the one that kind of slows things down, takes care of you, um, then there's music for that as well. So I guess this film, it's... It's doing the opposite of how I might use it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is, is it, well, like, not necessarily. Like, this, the person is he's driven, he's passionate about this specific instrument. Yeah. And therefore, if a high-tempo rhythm is something that appeals to him, then mm. it could be used just as well. For sure. Yes, maybe a psychologist. That's true, actually. No, you're, you're right. I guess that's the thing with this film, isn't it? It, it shows the 
shows the moments of brilliance, but also the the difficulty, the pain, the ugly bits. Absolutely, and like so, one ugly bit is we were talking about earlier about like um, Neiman earning the part in that scene. What you might not have noticed when you watched it is just a singular monotonous piano note that's played uh, and it gets louder you might not even notice that it's happening but just this one note as the piece progresses and comes to its culmination is subtle but significant enough to drive us to feel the piece really intensifying it it like adds an extra layer it's not just Neiman playing on the drums which is phenomenal it's Mm that and this added level mm. as well which i think really drives the tension of this moment in particular i don't remember hearing it i guess i wasn't paying that's not what i was paying attention no. to no fair but it, it it will have contributed to your your experience at that moment cool yeah um right last bit last but not least we're going to talk about the handheld camera style of this film and I'm talking about the same scene again uh, where where he's earning the part but I, I, I find it really really great how there's so many different aspects in this scene which are all put into place in order to drive the intensity of the experience for the viewer and the difference between having a camera on a tripod and holding the camera and this handheld camera style is in this scene in particular, it's following Fletcher around the room. And because of that, you aren't sure where he's going to go. You, you you don't know. Like Obviously, the, the cameraman and the director and the actors will, will know. Like they'll have chosen exactly where he's going to go and exactly what moment. But us as the audience, we have no idea. And this unpredictability of this man who we're in his realm at this point. Like, this is... Yeah. This is him. Like he's throwing chairs across the room. He's fine with that. You know, there's no problem. Nobody, nobody's gonna, nobody's gonna see. Oh, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. We can't, be, can't be doing that right now. You know. He is terrifyingly unpredictable. And which also adds to the intensity. Yeah. Of those those moments in the film, mm. which I think is great. So we're like following his pacing. His, I'm thinking he's he's like a, like a wild animal. But like you're yeah. in his. Like, you're in the lion's den, aren't you? Yeah, like, you cannot escape. <laughs> no. Well, you can. But you don't want to. You'll be finished, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's superb. And also, in this, the number of cuts that we see in this film escalate exponentially when Fletcher gets annoyed. And oh, when I he's love that. And when chairs and things, then the, the number of cuts in those moments is significantly higher than for the rest of the film. I think normally with with films and you get like, I don't know, an action film has like an average length of like four seconds um, and adventure five, sci-fi six. And then at the other end of it, you get horror, which has like 15 odd seconds, I think. But it's a different way of building the intensity mm, on screen mm. um, in those situations. Like it'll be focused on somebody's face and... Like, I don't know, you'll see a creature appearing in the background slowly, you know, rather than the pure number of, of cuts and that being why the intensity is is increased. Like, for example, when he's getting annoyed and 
when we're talking about cuts and screen placement also, we can see how well the director uses the widescreen well. Like, faces are, are cut, like, partially, or they're not fully in the frame. Or, like, it'll be just an empty drum set, or a drum set off the centre. So there'll be a drum set and, like, a white, white wall, of which... It's giving the impression that it's the drum set or nothing. You have nothing to fall back on. Like, this is everything. Failure threatens you every moment in that school, mm. in that situation. And just from the, the intensity and the way that I'm talking about it, like, it really impacted on me. Yeah, I can I can hear it. I can hear it in your voice. But but you're right. And I think there's an interesting then comment then of how... Um, because Fletcher does get fired from this university, mm. this institution, but surely he's a product of the way that they're building their students up or the the approach that they take Mm. it's it's i think what came first chicken or the egg yeah a little bit yeah so i I do see what you mean about like like well this this method works then why shouldn't i why should i change and that's kind of the ethos of the environment and and then that's shown in the cinematography this idea that yeah no it is your your instrument your craft or nothing yeah yeah that is your life. So, of course, you're going to end up with someone like Fletcher. Yeah, and it's, of course you're going to end up with somebody as obsessive as Neiman. Of course. It's encouraged. It's a wonderful film. Yeah. I think, I think it inspired a lot of debate as well about those perceptions of what drives us, what's, um, what's a healthy level of passion and drive, and, and what isn't, and what is worth losing in the pursuit of something else. You got to the point of being at one of the best conservatoires in the country and probably in the world, then it is going to be everything on the line for you Mm. at every moment. Mm. Everybody there is going to be practising hours and hours and hours a day. I mean, (laughs) piano players, typically, they'll they'll practise, it's like eight to ten hours a day. Wow. But then, you know someone who works a nine-to-five job that's an eight-hour day but we're not talking about the theory side of it we're talking about like just scales and things ah okay so then they have also their performing job on top ridiculous it's incredible kudos me too me too so i think that goes quite nicely on to what i wanted to discuss or reflect with you And that's something quite close to my heart, actually. Um, So as a clinical psychologist, I get trained in lots of different kinds of talking therapies. But one that I am particularly passionate about is compassion-focused therapy. And I think I'm probably going to use this film as an example when I'm trying to explain this approach to clients, um, if they've seen the film, that is. Great result. Yeah. So in compassion focused therapy, there is this appreciation that you have three systems within the body that you are fueled by all the time. You have your drive system, you have your threat system, and you have your soothe system. And the body's only really ever got enough energy and resources to be fueled or to fuel one, possibly two of those systems at any one time. And depending on the person, depending on their environment, depending on their their childhood, quite a lot of the time, they can have differently developed 
systems in the body. So someone who maybe had a very difficult childhood, for example, could have a really well-developed threat system because that kept them safe, whereas their soothing system might not be very developed at all because they have not had that learning from a safe parental figure, for example, um, to teach them how to activate our soothing system. They're not quite sure how to feel safe, how to be relaxed, for example. And then you have the third system, your drive system. This is kind of that part of you that fuels to fix things, it problem solves, it pushes us to explore more and more of the world. It also can be thought of as our attainment system or achievement system. You know, that idea of, you know, I must be on top. I must be a a, a good candidate to pass my genes on to the next generation. And I think it's really interesting to think about how those three systems are kind of interplaying in the main character of Andrew Neiman. And then it also touches on another element of compassion focused therapy, where we work with someone's inner critic, that judgmental, critical voice that we all have. Avenger grimaced as she said inner critic. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I know mine well. And then we also have our innate capacity for compassion, and we can develop a compassionate other. So we think about how well developed these three systems in the body are. So ideally what you want is kind of like a three-legged chair where you have an equally developed uh, soothing system, a drive system, and a threat system because they're all useful. But we want to be able to flow naturally between them depending on what is adaptive and useful. And we also, we are born with an inner critic. That is something which we all have, but we also all have an innate ability to be compassionate and to have a compassionate other who can also speak inside us. So if we can have a nice balance of those two inner voices as well, great, we're going to be in a perfect position to explore the world, to feel content, to be able to kind of become the optimal us, whatever that person might be, but we will be able to thrive. For me, this film shows what happens when your inner critic is much louder than your compassionate other. You've got this guy in in Fletcher who communicates very aggressively that you are brilliant, you are the best, or you are nothing. And you've then got this idea of, of Andrew who, when he met Fletcher, was already playing in the middle of the night, pushing himself, doing nothing but kind of listening to the greats, wanting to really achieve... And then you've got Fletcher who just kind of takes this on and pushes it to the nth degree. And I think this film really brings up a lot of debate about how we see what drives us to be the best. I think a lot of people have this opinion that for some reason, when it comes to ourselves, we should be able to do more. We should be better. And tough love is how we're going to get somewhere. I don't think that's so true when we talk about other people. I can see you are desperate to make some points here. Please go for it. But what if it's very nice, but you don't actually get anywhere? I love that that's where your mind went, because that's where a lot of people go. So thank you. Oh. (laughs) No. A lot of people have this idea that a compassionate-based approach 
means that you let yourself off the hook, means that you will let your loved ones off the hook, you know. But the difference is, what I said is, we are human, we understand that we make mistakes, but we learn from them. Compassion is for the hard stuff. We don't let ourselves off, but we understand that we're not perfect and we're not going to get everything perfectly right the first time. But it's okay to take yourself away, recuperate, and then we're going to try again because I have faith and belief in you. I know that you can do more. It's interesting that you, you're saying these things because Fletcher and uh, Neiman are always talking about Buddy Rich, mm. who's a drummer, mm-hmm. but actually was like pretty horrible. If you weren't doing what he wanted, he'd yell at you. He'd scream at you mm. and he'd tell you to get out. And Fletcher sort of takes that stance as well. Yeah. And Neiman sort of found somebody who is exactly like Buddy, but his mentor. Yeah. They've seen that as a template and as a model for what apparently they see as success. This idea, this immortal greatness and huge talent. And they think that must be the only way I can achieve it. I mean, if you're not going to be practicing like six hours a day, if you're only going to practice like an hour and a half a day, mm-hmm. then the tough love works, right? Again, it's coming back to this assumption that that's the only way that they will then practice that number of hours. And my argument is that that's not the case. We've kind of been brought up to believe that for some reason, but actually the evidence base says something really different. We learn best through reward when we talk about um, even even addictions, for example. Carrot and stick, yeah. Carrot and stick. For some reason, we think that we deserve the carrot. Well, no, sorry. We deserve the stick. Whereas when we're thinking about our loved ones, they can have the carrot. Mm. No. Everyone learns the same, fundamentally. Like, there are nuances and differences about what rewards work and what things we want to achieve and what our talent is. But the building blocks of how we learn always the same we we pick up stuff much quicker through reward our chemistry is set up that way dopamine our reward chemical this is also what makes us learn and it makes us feel good it makes you learn yeah when we talk about wanting to be able to replicate certain behaviors how do we train a dog how do you train a dog when you want it to learn to sit what do you do you sit his ass down <laughs> and then what do you do you give it a treat you give it a treat And what kinds of treats work best? Dog treats. Okay, so you're thinking food? Yep. Yep, and what's another one? Play. Yes. Also, for a slightly different one, based on play? Attention. Perfect. Thank you. We We did this all in one take. I just want (laughs) to thank you. Yeah, and why why are people going to be any different? Play, attention, affection. And also, get yeah, food. You know, there's a reason that a lot of people come for eat. <laughs> <laughs> Fundamental things about how we survive and how we thrive. But that's how we learn. That's how we drill in behaviour and how we replicate something. Interesting that all three of those things are things that musicians and, and artists get to do. They get to play. Mm-hmm. Um, because they played, mostly, they get attention. Yep, and then they get really nice buffets. Yeah, depending on where you go, I suppose. I know, I've got a couple. I know a couple. But there you go. And that's why people go into those industries, because we're, we're wired up to one mm. social praise and affection and to be able to play. 
And again, this is something that when it comes to this whole like inner critic, tough love, that's how I will achieve more. What's some of the first things that we take out of our life and that you see Andrew Neiman do in this film? He gets rid of social attachments. Yeah. And he goes super serious all the time. Where's the play? Yeah, because he actually breaks up with his girlfriend, doesn't he? He breaks up with his girlfriend. He he breaks breaks apart the family. Mm-hmm. They don't want anything to do with him after that because it's a bit naff. No. But again, again, it's almost like he the poor... I do feel sorry for Andrew. He's got inner critics all around him. So you've got his, his quite abusive, aggressive, essentially manifest inner critic in Fletcher. But then also there is that scene where he's having dinner with his dad and then his cousins and his aunt. And they're all listing the various achievements of his cousins and how, by comparison, Andrew isn't measuring up. Could you also say that, right, so he hasn't got the attention, so he's going to play up so he gets the attention? I'm just playing devil's advocate. Oh, yeah. uh, so so biting back as a way of getting the yeah. attention that he's not otherwise. Yes, and it's it's something that again we all do. I can think of several examples where both of us, because we know each other very well now, we can tease each other. You're shaking your head. You do this all the time, but we know you know what yeah. buttons to press. Of course, because at the end of the day, what's the best? What you want is positive social regard. But of the options of negative social regard or being ignored, being ignored, being socially rejected from your community, back in the day, that meant death. We wouldn't survive on our own. We're a, we're a tribe, we're a pack animal. Mm, so you need to be part of a group. Yeah. Even if you're the thorn in its side, you're still in it. But I mean, like he's, he's rejecting one group for another group, isn't he? So it's not quite that. Yes, yeah, so uh, I guess, yeah, so thinking about this film, it's really interesting. That scene is kind of, I guess, about Andrew choosing one tribe over another, isn't he? Mm. But but again, it really does tie into this idea that him going down this line of, I need the critic approach, I need to be listening to my critic, and that's the only way I'm going to be driven forward towards my goals... Yeah, you then you're pushing away other forms of attachment. You're getting rid of all those things that actually could make him thrive. So personally, I actually don't think his girlfriend was the right girlfriend for him because I think they were so different. She had no goals, no aim in life, and I don't. She had think... no idea about any of his interests either. She had no which, idea, which is fine. You you can you can be in a relationship with somebody who has different interests than you. Yeah, but. You want to be interested in learning, yeah, at least. Yeah. Um, so I don't think that they were a perfect match. I'm not saying that they were. But the fact that he, he pushed her away because the assumption was that she would dampen his resolve. Again, it's one way of looking at it. There's loads of examples of how it's your loved ones who then help you thrive. They are your muse. They yeah. are your inspiration. They're the thing that kind of talk you down when you're on the edge which can happen when you are that driven, that passionate, you push yourself mm, to exhaustion. Necessary, and she wouldn't have had that, that edge enough no, for him. No, but, and then But that does bring me to the ending of the film and why it made me really happy is that you have this moment of Fletcher, critic, has ultimately screwed Andrew. He set him up Properly. to fail. And fail he does, 
because he had no idea what piece they were playing. Of course. And Mm. it was in such a public forum. Awful, mortifying, climax of all the tension you were talking about. And then he runs off stage. But where does he run to? Who is going to help him come back from this? Is it his critic? That the thing that pushes him to succeed in the end? No. He runs to his father, who has always been there, and who doesn't actually care if he succeeds or not in life. He loves him. He loves him unconditionally. And that's what you see. You see a moment of a boy running to his father who has seen him fail. So he knows that in running to him and the fact that his father just came in with big open arms hug, the fact that you have failed means nothing to me. I don't care. You are good enough as you are. And it's that moment of, do you know what? It's okay. Whatever happens, it's okay. And that actually gives him the strength because his dad then says, do you want to go home? And he doesn't even reply. He goes straight back on stage and he takes charge of that situation and he shows what he is able to do as a performer, as a musician, and as an artist. As a man as well. As a man as well. Yeah, he does. It's an interesting moment. It's like that, that that is almost like his watershed moment, isn't it? Like that's the one where he turns the corner mm. and he, yeah, like you said, shows what he can do. Yeah. And he takes charge of that critic as well. He faces up to his critic from a compassionate place, from a sense of soothing. He goes and faces his critic and he doesn't push him away. He's not fighting against him. He's learning to harness him. And for me, that's the really powerful mm. moment. Because again, compassion-focused therapy, it's not about pushing your critic down. It's not about getting rid of them. We know that they're there. But let's work with it. Let's harness it. Some major kudos for the director who wrote it in like a year. Yeah, thank you. That's outrageous. Mm-hmm. It's like from one Sundance festival with the short film, got picked up and he managed to submit the feature for the next year. Well, which is outrageous sorry you're saying no I, I one I think I do think he's done an incredible job yeah. incredible and I'm sure he probably had some of his own issues with drive and motivation to get done <laughs> <laughs> but I, I'm curious about your comment there where I was talking about you know what he achieved and then he said that this is also a big moment for him becoming a man and I don't know if you want to talk a bit more about that because I'm interested in it, but it's definitely not something that I can talk about. Yeah, I, I think that it's that standing up to the the critics, standing up to the big person in your life. It's that one moment where things can turn around. Like, we've all had to do certain things and take charge of certain moments. And I think that it comes at, it can be at, like, I don't know, 14, or it can be at, like, 21, or... 27 you know 57 exactly but i think that it will happen at some point for each and every person maybe it'd be different it could be it could be a little tiny moment like Mm. a little tiny little rebellion or it could be like oh no i paid for this i i I paid my rent this month Mm. with no help Mm. and each of those is different for each individual and it's really nice well it can be a really nice or it can be a really traumatic moment Mm. and it just depends in that moment if you're in a position that you can deal with that or not but 
coming from a place of compassion and the main the three main things that we talk about with that is it's it's wise so it knows Mm. hardship it's courageous it knows hardship but it's still there and it faces it and it's committed it will commit to getting through that because it has faith and that's why I love it so much and I guess yeah being able to come from a place of compassion when you have to stand up and be be brave be that I don't know that coming of age situation or scenario for you you will survive it's not always as public as whiplash but Mm. non-public ones don't make as much don't make as good films do they because we didn't see it yeah (laughs) (laughs) but it's, it's a beautiful moment for me the only fear I had was that at the end Fletcher would have walked away from that scenario thinking yes all of my cruelty <laughs> got him to the place he was kind of yes but also Fletcher see, has seen the other side of it like his, a student of his that he he adored killed himself yeah so he has seen the other side of it and it really affected him as well like he didn't want to talk to Neiman like he he came in and he he stopped rehearsal and he played the tape mm. of of him playing I think it was saxophone Mm-hmm. But he didn't take any responsibility. He was sad. I don't think he took any responsibility for having a part to play in that. You don't know. Maybe. I don't think we saw any evidence of it. I think you could give him the benefit of doubt and think that maybe he just didn't want to say anything about that publicly. But I didn't see I didn't see a change in his behaviour with any of his current students because of it. Okay. You're looking at the evidence of it. Alright, okay. As the scientist. well as a scientist Mm -hmm. what was the part of the film that you would like to have changed yes I know this one actually yeah this wasn't hard for me this week my argument comes crashing down um, with one moment in this film so I would like to change that moment so that my argument holds up (laughs) (laughs) right um, so during the scene where Andrew is having dinner with his family, Andrew is on one side, the rest of his family is on another, talking about what success is. And this then becomes quite a personal attack between Andrew and his cousins about what they've achieved in their lives so far. And the final nail in the coffin of that argument and why Andrew stopped arguing and retreated was because his his dad chipped in on the other side when he mm. had the opportunity to stand up for his son. Whether he believed that his son was right or not, he could have put himself in his son's shoes, seen the pain that he was in, and he could have at least defended him a bit. Whereas what he did was he asked him if he'd been offered a paying job yet. But from his dad's point of view... I think that it holds up script-wise in that his dad is a, a school teacher. He's not. He's not a musician. He's not painted as certainly. No. We, we don't. We don't know if he is or not. But that that's his world. I go to work. I get paid, and that's how I progress and I succeed in life, which is fantastic. But it's not the same as Andrew. His way of seeing the world is is so different, and his way of seeing success. Mm. as well it's yeah. so different yeah but what what about you darling what would you change the thing that i'd change is i'd keep the actor from the short film 
Whoa. Just because it must have been so gutting for him. I'm sure he could have done a great job. Like, Miles Teller is phenomenal. He is absolutely brilliant in the role. Yeah. But I'd just be heartbroken if I was him. If I was the guy from the short film. Something Simmons, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's not J.K. Simmons' son, mm. but it's somebody else, Simmons. Yeah, it came down to the two of them in the, the final. It was between Miles and uh, this other actor, at which Teller got the role because he has job experience, mm. whereas the other guy didn't, which actually kind of made the role a bit because 40% of the drumming in the final version was Miles Teller, yeah, that... which is pretty impressive considering. It is, yeah. But... I put myself in in Simmons' shoes. I'd just be so, so gutted after all the critical acclaim and praise and things. And you're like, but I won, I won a, a Sundance Award, or was part of the project when it won the Sundance Award. And you just throw me away. I'd be gutted. I feel for you, Simmons. I feel for you. Solidarity. <laughs> Solidarity between <laughs> actors. I like it. No, it would have it would have been interesting to see, because it was. Yeah, basically everyone else from the original short, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, because we watched it, didn't we? Mm. Um, I think, yeah, J.K. Simmons was there. The guy who plays the drum against, he's the main the main drummer, um, who actually like did some work with Teller, I think, during filming, just to get him up, up to speed on certain things. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, because he's actually a really good drummer, apparently. Oh, wow. What could have been? Well, it might have been pants, you don't know. You don't know, and... It, yeah, I mean, the, the film as it is, is incredible. And mm. I don't know, for me, I think Miles has... I don't know, he's got less of an orthodox look about him. And I quite like that the main character is... He is a bit gawky. He is a bit dorky. Mm. He's he's not mainstream. And his aspirations aren't either. Which is funny, because... Miles Teller's previous two, three films before it, he was the main character in, like, was it 23 and something, or... Yeah, that's true. He, he played the the American jock. Almost. He did, he did. But I, I think he, aesthetically, I think he fits yeah. this very well. Mm, definitely, most definitely. Mm. So, good job, all round. Yeah, good job, but it would be cool to have seen it the other way round. Don't worry, babe. We'll get you your Sundance Award at some point. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Rob it. Go on. <laughs> I hope you've enjoyed our ramblings. I, I did. I did too. Yeah, great film. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Bye.